Welcome to the Upper Room Sermon of the Week. For more information, go to urfellowship.com. have your Bibles, we'll be in Genesis 32. If you want to go there, Genesis 32, 24. If you haven't been with with us for a bit, you should know that we are in in a series called Open Heaven, and where we are talking about blessings and, and different things like that. And at the beginning of this series, I've been hitting some of the main points of Jacob's life, because Jacob... Uh, Jacob's life was a journey of really struggling for blessing. So we've been going through the life of Jacob, and we have seen some interesting things about him. Um, One of the main ideas that we have seen through all the stories is that Jacob would not be considered like a good guy, right? He ain't no Mr. Rogers. He doesn't act in an upstanding way at all. And that is because the Bible is here not so much to show you how to live a good life, as it is to show you how to live a new life, a transformed life. And so through, through the grace of God. So God comes down into the lives of people who don't look for the grace, don't deserve his grace. But when, when you get to these stories about Jacob, you see that um, more than anywhere. So you almost never see Jacob doing it right. So today, we're going to look at one of my favorite stories in the Bible. It's the story of Jacob wrestling God. And I think it's, it's brilliant because there's so much symbolism and meaning and lessons in only like eight verses. These eight verses that we're going to read today. So the context here is that uh, Jacob was one of two sons, right? Esau and Jacob. Jacob lied and cheated Esau out of his firstborn blessing. He had to flee for his life to a distant country. And in that distant country, over the years, Jacob has prospered. All right, Now he's coming home with all his large family and all of his children and all his servants and his flocks and his livestock and his entourage. He's got a lot of people. But as he's coming home, he learns that his brother Esau is coming out to meet him, leading a band of 400 men. So Jacob is terrified that Esau is just going to kill him, kill them all. But Jacob has a plan. Jacob always has a plan, right? Jacob divides up some of his entourage and his servants and his livestock, and he sends them ahead in waves. Each wave is going to hit Esau first, and the servants are directed to give all kinds of presents to Esau and say, this is a gift for for my Lord Esau, right? As a way of calming him and hopefully turning his, kind of turning his heart toward Jacob. Then Jacob, he divides the rest of his family and his children and his servants and all his other entourage into two parties and sends them off in different directions. Because he says, well, if Esau attacks one, at least I can get away with the other, and I won't lose everything. So now he's kind of sent these guys off, sent them off, sent them off. And uh, so what is happening in Scripture that we're going to read, this is, this is the night before Jacob himself is going to come face to face with Esau. And we're told darkness fell and Jacob was alone. So, Genesis 32, 24 through 32. says, So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip, so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, Let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, What is your name? Jacob answered. Then the man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, 
because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. So in this very interesting scene, he's wrestling. Jacob is wrestling with God. And he has this amazing encounter with God. So the question is, how can we have more of God? How can we see this open heaven principle of a closer walk? More encounters, a deeper understanding of God. Not just knowing uh, about him or believing in him in some general way. But how do we actually have an open heaven, life-changing encounter with God? We really learn the principles of what a life-changing encounter and experience and the blessing of God might look like here in these scriptures, and, and how it might not look exactly how we might imagine it. All right, so these, there are, these are the four reasons why Jacob was able to have an encounter with God, and they're, they're the four principles, I think, will be involved in anyone's encounter with God. So if you are taking notes, number one is, number one, you have to meet God yourself. All right, that might seem pretty obvious. You know, look at verse 24, Jacob was left alone. Now, it's the night before the next day, and the next day Esau will get to them. Tomorrow, Esau will reach them. Jacob's not sure what has happened to anyone else he sent before him. For all he knows, they're all dead. He has put everybody in front of him except his immediate family. Tomorrow, they'll meet Esau. Tomorrow is the day of crisis. So what does Jacob want to do the the night before the great day of crisis? He wants to be alone. He wants to think. He wants to reflect He wants to pray. When he seeks to get alone, that's when he has this encounter with God. Here's the first point. If you want to have an encounter with God, you have to meet God personally, individually. Now, what I just said does not contradict all the things that we say around here about the importance of community. Okay, not at all. What what I just said does not go against anything we've said about how you have to have friends and relationships and how community is necessary for growing in God. I'm not going against any of those things. It just means the truth is multifaceted. So here's, here's what I'm saying. It's, it's possible to get caught up in a movement and to get very excited about being part of a group and not meet God yourself. That's possible. Um, it's possible to experience God as part of a bigger whole but never personally know him. Sadly, this happens often. But the best example, I think, is this you know, you see these famous Christian leaders who love to talk about God and talk about you know, traditional values and end up getting busted for having affairs. Their religion was social. It was maybe a job for them, but it was never personal. They were never changed by it. There has to be a time when our faith stops being cultural or familial or emotional or social and becomes personal. It is possible to listen to other people's experience of God uh, encounters with God and see the spiritual reality and joy other people have and kind of live off other people's encounters and other people's experiences and other people's faith. And listen, you can, you can do that for a time. That's all right. If you are struggling, if you are doubting, if you're one of those desert times, you can survive off the strength and the faith of others for a time. For those, those who are stronger than you, but you can't 
live in that place. Verse 24 says, so Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him. What does that mean? Someone jumped him. Someone intruded on him. Someone interfered with him. That's how you know your relationship with God has gotten personal. Religion is historical. It's cultural. It's familiar. It's, it's familial. It's all those things. But when it actually begins to intrude on how you live your personal life, when God isn't always agreeing with your ideas or your thoughts or your plans, then you're wrestling. And maybe you don't like that. Maybe that upsets you. Maybe you don't like feeling that way. Well, then good. You're wrestling. But make sure you're experiencing God and not experiencing other people's experiences of God. Okay, you, have, you understand what I'm saying? You have to meet God yourself. So that's number one. Number two, you have to meet God in your weakness. Of all the things I'm going to say, of all the things I ever say, this, this might be the scariest. Okay, So I don't, I don't say it lightly, but I'll be real honest about it. There is no more intense place in the Bible that shows you that we do not have a tame God than this. Okay, let me say it this way. This is the first place we see Jacob actually starting to do things right. Right. First, why is Jacob there at night? He hears Esau is coming. He has every reason to believe Esau is coming to kill him with a small army. Why doesn't he just go back? Why didn't he just turn around and leave? That's the safest thing. Why does he continue to go home when he knows his very life is in danger? The answer is back in Genesis 31.2. God appears to Jacob and says, I want you to go home. It's time to go home to the land of your fathers. Go home. The fact that Jacob doesn't run, the fact that he's there is because he's willing to obey God at the risk of his life. So here he is being obedient to God in a very difficult circumstance. The other thing is, uh, we see him doing his praying. He gets alone. He sends his family away. He says, I have to be alone. Why? To reflect and to pray. All right. Now let me, let me ask you a question. In all the teachings you've ever gotten, in all the expectations you have about how God operates, how do you expect God to respond to a man who has obeyed him at the risk of his life, who has put his life on the line to obey his word and follow his will, who's seeking him in prayer, who's filled with fears and at the end of the rope, end of his rope. How does God respond to a man who's being obedient, seeking him in prayer, and scared? What does God do to a man like that? He clobbers him, knocks him down, literally, assaults him, put him puts him in a hammerlock, maims him for the rest of his life. What we, what we normally hear is if you obey and you do everything right according to God's will, and you pray, and you have your quiet time, and you go to church, and you study your Bible, and you do everything right, God will, what, clobber you? Knock you down? Wrestle you to the ground? This is not a God of anybody's imagination. Right? Why is this text here? It must have happened. This must have happened because nobody would have invented this story. Right? This is a God who, as C.S. Lewis puts it in the famous little line in the Chronicles of Narnia, there's a place where the characters are talking about the Christ figure and they say, safe? Who said anything about him being safe? Of course he's not safe, but he's good. We have to be careful here not to put God in some box. Not to say, well, 
This is what the open heaven looks like. Or, this is how God works. In John 11, Jesus is at the tomb of Lazarus. Uh, and when Jesus gets there, he's going to use Lazarus' suffering, sickness, and death, isn't he? He's going he's to do great things through it, yes? He has plans for it. He even says that. He's going to use it for a wonderful purpose. But he sees Mary and Martha crying, and he breaks down into tears. He gets to the tomb, and he is angry. He's furious at the tomb, at the disease, at the death of his friend Lazarus. Well, he knows what's about to happen, right? He's about to raise Lazarus from the dead, and yet he's distraught. What that means is God has plans for our suffering. He has plans for us in our suffering, but he's never clinical about it. He's never remote or removed from it. He's always involved with us. He weeps with us when we weep. Having said that, this text shows us that God sometimes has to wrestle us into transformation, into a transformed life, rather than comfort us into a transformed life. When does Jacob figure it out? When does Jacob have the turning point and realize this is God? When you get down to 28, this mysterious wrestler says, you've wrestled with God and you have prevailed. So he says, he says who he is. So in the very beginning, Jacob didn't know this was God. And at the very end, he definitely did know this was God. By the time he gets to verse 28, he knows this is not a man, but God. So he, see, he's been wrestling. But where does he understand what's happening? There's a point where he begins to realize or recognize that he's in the presence of God. And he starts to hold on to him and say, I'm not going to let you go. Where does that happen? All the commentators say it happens in verse 25. In verse 25 it says, The man touched the socket of Jacob's hip and it was wrenched. So the Hebrew word touched there is a word that means uh, the merest contact, a light touch, or a tap. What, we've been being t- what we're being told is Jacob, after wrestling with this mysterious figure to a draw for hours, suddenly sees the man reach over, tap his hip, and immediately he's in this incredible pain. And he realizes one leg is useless, and he realizes this person could have incinerated him, melted him if he wanted to, anytime he wanted. That's the turning point. That's where he begins to not let go. When somebody attacks you, why do you, why do you wrestle? You wrestle to get away, right? But in verse 26, he won't let him go. He has changed why he's wrestling. Now he knows who it is. He says, I can't let you go until you bless me. When did that change happen? At the moment of pain, at the moment of weakness, at the moment he realized he was vulnerable and defenseless. That's what I mean about this being scary. Listen, have you ever wrestled anyone before? Just like three minutes of wrestling is absolutely exhausting, isn't it? Just talking about wrestling for the last 15 minutes has made me want to lie down, but I... I can't imagine wrestling all night long. So here's my question. Why? Why did God do this? You know, at the very beginning of the whole evening, why didn't God show up to Jacob and say, Jacob, let me just explain to you the meaning of your life, right? I can save us both a lot of trouble. It's, it's me you've been looking for, all right? Why didn't God just do that? I'll tell you. Let me, let me just tell you a little bit about me, and maybe you can relate to. Um, there's absolutely no way I have ever been able to learn except through disappointment, through frustration, through agony that I've been looking 
in other things for what only God can give me. That's the only way that I have ever learned that lesson. I haven't been able to learn that by being told. I haven't been, you know, by having somebody write it down in a book for me. The only way I've ever come close to understanding that God is the source of the blessing I've been looking for is through wrestling and pain. That's just the way it is. Maybe you're different from me, but I don't think you're different from me. This is a God who says, I want to bless you. I want to change your life. I want to wake you up to who you are. I want to wake you up to who I am. And often, the way he moves you into transformation is by wrestling you in. And I know that's true in my life. Most of you know that's true in your life. You know the famous C.S. Lewis phrase, God whispers to us in our prosperity, but he shouts to us in our adversity. There may be times where God becomes, out of love, the enemy of your old self. The self that's not built on God so that your new self can grow. That's number two. So number three. The third principle is God only meets you at the center of your life. There are kind of these two themes in Jacob's life that are reflected by two words in the story and that show us all these lines of Jacob's life coming together at this point. Uh, the first one is, and you can't really see it too easily when you're reading it in English, but in Hebrew it comes out. In verse 24 it says, this man wrestled with him. But in the Hebrew, do you know what it actually says? The word for wrestle? It's the word Jacob. So it says the man came and he Jacobed with him. The word Jacob is the word for wrestle. Somebody finally is out Jacobing Jacob. The reason Jacob's name is wrestle is because all his life he was a wrestler. Somebody who was always trying to get the upper hand, trying to jockey for position, trying to get an advantage. He was a wrestler. He was a conniver. He was a schemer. But who's he wrestling all his life? If you asked him, he would say, the problem with my life is I've had to wrestle Esau. I wrestled with him in my mother's womb. I wrestled with him for my birthright. I wrestled with him for my father's favor. I wrestled with him for the leadership of the family. Esau is the problem with my life. I've been wrestling with Esau. He's the one. In the middle of the night, this mysterious figure comes and begins to wrestle with him. Why? What's God saying? He's saying, you dummy. You dumb dumb. I'm the one you've been wrestling with all your life. You thought the big crisis day of your life was tomorrow morning? No, it's tonight. You thought tomorrow you were going to meet the person you've been wrestling with all your life? Oh, no. Tonight you do. God is going, the problem beneath all of your problems has been you've been wrestling with me. You've been trying to resist me. You've been trying to, res- to fight me out of your life. You wanted to be your own Savior and your own Lord. And he says, until you realize I'm the one you've been wrestling with all your life, not Esau, not Isaac, not Laban, not anybody else, but me, you're not going to really understand yourself and you're not going to really have an encounter with me. So, so on one hand, the theme of his life is wrestling. But the other theme of his life is, life is blessing. And when he says, I will not let you go until you bless me, Jacob grew up with a, a, a hole, a kind of emptiness, an inner vacuum. He was not convinced of his own value. 
who's not convinced of his own worth. So what's he doing? Why is he out there wrestling? He was out there wrestling with everybody because he was trying to fill that hole. Why was he trying to fool Isaac? To get the approval of his father. To give himself that inner blessing. Why did he do anything he could to get the beautiful Rachel as his wife? In order to fill that hole with inner blessing. To get the blessing. Jacob has been searching in the wrong places. Jacob has been using God as a means to an end. He has been negotiating with God. He's been going, okay, there's a blessing. God, can you help me get it? I'll work with you if you can help me get it. But finally here, this is the place where Jacob goes goes from being a person who knows about God to knowing God. He's fighting this man off in the beginning, but at the end he's holding on to him. Here's what he's saying. I will not let you go until you, God, bless me. Jacob is saying, I've been an idiot. Here's the approval I was looking for from my father. Here's the beauty I was looking for from my wife, Rachel. The real blessing is right here. And he says, now that I've found it, I'm not going to let go. Because you have the blessing I've needed all along. You are the source of the blessing. You are the only thing that will fulfill me. Jacob finally says, what is your name? He says, why do you ask me my name? What kind of answer is that? Jacob is saying, what's your name? You know what the guy says? You know my name. Who else could I be, right? It's God. Jacob is wrestling with God and the sun's about to come up. And God is hinting that if Jacob sees his face in the sunlight, he might die. And any rational human being at this point would have said, yeah, you know what, I'm, I'm too young to die. That's, I'm going to get going. Right. That's what he should have said. Any rational human being would have said that. But instead of doing the rational thing, which is to say, let me go, instead he grabs hold of him and says, I won't let you go. I know I'm about to die, but I'm not going to let you go. Because now, after all of my life looking for blessing in my father, looking for blessing in my, in my wife, all my life wrestling people to get blessing, I suddenly realize now, finally, you have the blessing I've been looking for. And I will not let you go until you bless me. And we know that Jacob has finally changed because he's holding on in spite of pain and he's holding on in spite of danger. And what happens? He gets a blessing. One of the most amazing things is in verse 20. 8 through 30 when it says, you have been wrestling with God and man and have prevailed. God is saying, you have been fighting me, you've been fighting everybody else, you've been a schemer, you've been a wrestler, and I reward you. That's such an interesting paradox here. Here's a man holding on for dear life. Jacob is seriously injured, powerless, and God stands over him and says, winner. How can God say winner to a loser? How can God say good to a bad? How can God say accepted to the unacceptable? Even Jacob is perplexed by it. You see, in verse 30, he calls the place Peniel, saying, I got this close, I almost saw God's face. I got this close to God, and yet my life was spared. He's amazed that he lived. Jacob is shocked that all he did was get a blow that woke him up 
and he didn't get the blow that killed him. And he says, now, how can God look at my life and tell me that all these years I've been fighting with people and trampling on people and cheating people, including God himself, and say, he still says, winner, you triumphed, you prevailed. How can God do that? How can the holy come into the whole unholy? How can God accept me? Kenneth Clark uh, was a famous art historian, a brilliant dude, uh, a skeptic. He lived in the middle of the 20th century. He tells this amazing incident in his biography. He says, When I was living in a villa in France, there was a curious episode. I had a religious experience. It took place in a church of San Lorenzo, but it did not seem to be connected with the beauty of the architecture. I can only say that for a few minutes, my whole being was radiated with heavenly joy, more intense than anything I had ever experienced before. Wonderful as it was, it caused an awkward problem in terms of my action. My life was far from blameless. I would have to reform. My family would think I was going mad. Then I began to think maybe it was a delusion. For in moral terms, I was completely unworthy of such a flood of grace. Gradually, the effect wore off, and I made no effort to retain it. I was too deeply embedded in the world to change course. But I had felt the finger of God, I was quite sure. Here's Kenneth Clark, a skeptic, and he experiences, to his amazement, this, this encounter with God, this, this beginning of blessing. He feels love and he feels joy beyond anything he ever has imagined. But he realizes it's a holy presence, and that confuses him because he knows that he's morally unqualified for it, and he's going to have to change his life if he embraces it. He says, I know I'm not morally qualified. Why would God let this sort of thing happen to me? He knows the problem. Jacob knows the problem. You know the problem. How could God possibly bless something so flawed? The answer is there is one more principle, one more thing in this text, without which you can't have an encounter with God. So number four, you have to meet him in his weakness. What do I mean? Do you realize what God had to do in order to save and bless Jacob? He wanted to save and bless Jacob. Do you know what he had to do? Here's the thing with wrestling, okay? Real wrestling, not like WWE stuff, right? Maybe some of you consider that real wrestling, all right? If you do, feel free to email me explaining that to me, okay? I'll chuckle as I delete that email, but in, in real wrestling, you're only allowed to wrestle somebody else in your weight class, right? So how much does God weigh? What weight class would God be in? Jacob should have been vaporized, right? But look at verse 25. Verse 25 says, Because the man, that's God, could not overcome Jacob. What? What does that mean? It means that God voluntarily held himself back. He curbed his incredible power. He held it back. I can understand it like this. My girls have always liked to wrestle with me. Right? So how does a 30-something-year-old, well-over-200-pound man wrestle with two toddlers without killing them? Right? I hold back my power. 
I hold back my weight. Yes, I could arm bar one of them and ground and pound the other into submission in a matter of seconds if I wanted to. I tell them that. But I hold back so that they can experience the wrestling too. God was voluntarily weak so he could bring salvation and not crush Jacob. So he could bless him. You see, if he had won, if he'd have incinerated Jacob, he wouldn't have gotten what he wanted. What he wanted was a changed heart, a changed life, an awakening, a transformation. So he lost in order to win. Now, is that just some sort of kind of cute paradox? No, not at all. It's pointing to the ultimate place where God won through losing and triumphed through defeat. On the cross, Jesus wrestled with what? With the full weight. Jacob didn't get the full weight. God took most of his weight off. He made himself weak. So all Jacob got was the blow that woke him up, but didn't destroy him. On the cross, Jesus went into our place and took the penalty we deserve. In other words, he got the full weight. He got the full weight of justice. But he held on. He said, I won't let go until they are blessed. What was he doing on the cross? He was taking the curse of the law in order to get the blessing for us. We have to meet God in his weakness because only when we see him being weak for us do our hearts get melted and that inner emptiness finally gets filled with real blessing. Here's the irony. There's nothing more loving than a God who would empty himself of his power, empty himself of his greatness, come down and live a life of a servant and die on a cross for us. Nothing more loving than that. And that will change you if you see it. He valued me so much that he was willing to go through that for me. He was willing to become weak for me so that my weakness could be turned into strength. In Isaiah it says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds. We are healed. When you see how God becomes weak for us, made himself low, humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, we begin to move from just knowing about God to having an encounter with him. So maybe you, maybe you feel like you're wrestling God. Maybe you feel like you, God jumped you. If that's you today, and you're out there saying, you know, I don't, what am I supposed to do? Just hold on. I know that sounds a little bit trite, but you know what? Why is Jacob in the end actually the victor? Because he was weak when he didn't understand what God was doing. All he knew was, I'm going to hold on. I'm not going to stop loving you. I'm not going to stop serving you. I'm not going to stop seeking you. I don't feel good. I don't feel anything at all. I feel nothing but pain, but I'm going to hold on. And he won. You see near the end where it says the sun rose above him. Hebrew narrative is very sparse. There's, there are a few details, but every detail, detail is there for a reason. And if you go back and you remember in Genesis 28, the sun was setting on Jacob. Remember that? He was using a rock for his pillow. Now it's rising on Jacob. What does that mean? It means that this is a new day. He has been wrestling with God all along. 
But this is the day in which he is really, truly a changed person. He held on in spite of pain, in spite of confusion, and had a life-transforming encounter with God. So hold on to him even when you feel weak, when you don't understand. Think about what he did for you and then hold on. And your weakness will be turned to strength. This is the fight of your life. May we be people who refuse to let go until we see the blessing. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for helping us to see how God and his love sometimes wrestles us into a transformed life. We ask that you would make it possible for those of us who who maybe feel weak to look to you and hold on. Those of us who are feeling that we need an encounter with you, help us to look to what you did for us on the cross. We pray that you would make yourself a reality to us. And we ask this all in Jesus' name.